Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hi there, welcome to the second half of my interview with John Garrett, where he provides invaluable insights into building mental models to find patterns and characteristics of great companies. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to the practical examples that John went through to showcase how he used his mental repository to identify great companies. John also highlights the importance of certain psychological traits to become a great investor, as well as potential pitfalls to be mindful of. As always, we find out who has had the most influence on John as a person and investor. If you want to listen to the full episode, head to the Rask YouTube channel. Here is part two of the chat. You've covered a lot of great investors, um, and this is going to be a tough question, but um, who do you think resembles um, yourself the most out of all these great investors? Well, I think it's, you know, I mean, I think these guys, you know, I've been running the fund for, for three years, so um, I, I think all of them have, um, have got track records, um, you know, longer track records and, um, uh, you know, very attractive returns. So, um, you know, maybe it's a question in, you know, in terms of, um, you know, 10 years, but, in, you know, in terms of performance, I suppose, but in terms of style, I think a lot of, I think a lot of investors, you know, that I've studied, they, they start off very focused on valuation and very focused on, you know, PE multiples probably, and, you know, building discounted cash flows and, um, you know, on the quant on the quantitative things, um, you know, and they're focused on, you know, like on the macro and, um, you know, maybe charting and, you know, things like that. And I think over time, uh, you know, maybe they're focused on shorting stocks. And but I think over time, and, you know, the investors that I resonate more with are those that, um, you know, are focused on quality, you know, on the quality businesses and generating returns, uh, you know, from the underlying businesses. Now, you know, Buffett says there's um, more than one way to investment heaven um, there's plenty of ways to skin a cat so I'm not saying you know the way that I do it is you know by any means um, you know the, the best way but I think you know I probably resonate with you know those type of investors so I listened to a podcast the other day from a guy third point one of the um, you know most successful hedge funds in America and uh, he was the co-CIO who's now left and he said that um, you know he, he used to be really hung up on um, you know, kind of valuation and, um, you know, focused on investor, you know, very focused on investors and very focused on macroeconomics. And now he just reads about great businesses, you know, finding very, high, very high quality businesses. And I, I think that's, you know, the transition that, you know, that, that I've made. Some people, I think, make it very early, make it very early in their career, but I think it's um, a long-term evolution. So, you know, guys like, you know, that, that I think in that category that are exceptional, you know, people like Buffett and Munger at the top of the list and Chuck Acray, um, Terry Smith from Fundsmith, you know, the guys from WCM, Nick Sleep, you know, these guys that are focused on buying high quality businesses, having patience. That's, that, that's the type of, you know, investor, I think that I, that, you know, that I more reflect in the latter part of my career. I find your statement about a lot of investors going through that transition from being quantitative based and numbers based, building um, DCS, um, and then more to the qualitative aspect. I think I speak for myself where I'm trying to build models and trying to work out the value of a business. 
I think humans are wired in a way to gain comfort from having a number and because it's it provides you with that safety net in a way. We think the numbers are important, you know, obviously, because, you know, they reflect the underlying business. They are backward looking, though. So, um, you know, the numbers that come out of a business are all backward looking. They're not going to tell you, you know, kind of what's going to what's going to happen in the in the future. They're also don't tell you everything about it, the business. They're like an abstraction, you know, yeah. I suppose. Um, and they're a function of the qualitative factors of the business. So, you know, what is the business model? What is its culture? What is its relationships with um, with its customers? Are its people you know, empowered, what are the competitive advantages? So the numbers come from those, uh, you know, from those attributes. So, you know, we tend to think more about, you know, when we're thinking about investing, I don't think anyone sits down, builds a spreadsheet and says, oh, wow, like my DCF's $2.20 and the stock's trading at $1.70, you know, it's a buy. I mean, I just mm -hmm. don't think that's what, you know, and I agree with you, people, they kind of get anchored on spreadsheets. And one of the problems with spreadsheets is you've got to fill in a lot of, you know, if you've got a detailed spreadsheet, you've got to fill in a lot of <laughs> a lot of cells. And I think some people spend a lot of time trying to fill those cells in as opposed to standing back and thinking about, you know, the business in a more holistic sense and understanding that what is the true DNA that, that is behind this business. And so to me, the, the simpler the model the better. So we, you know, we don't build DC, you know, we tend not to build DCF models and spit out, you know, numbers because I don't think it can be that precise. So, you know, if we build a model, it will be, you know, more than likely we'll look back over, you know, I'll go back over five years and read everything that the company has said. And I might fill out a spreadsheet with, you know, what the key revenue lines have done and costs and, and so forth to give me some understanding and how much, capital have have they raised any capital or has the business you know we love businesses that have you know one of the businesses we own um i think they had earnings in 2014 the year before they listed of seven cents last year they did i think 19 cents haven't raised one share founders own 50 percent of the company never sold a share uh, they're in retail the number of stores has probably gone up 30 percent you know they paid dividends through like you know i'd much rather go and Kind of do that analysis and see okay well where's the company been deploying their capital what's the share count done you know how's the revenue line grown um read about what they said they were going to do versus what they were going to do you know those type of kind of more qualitative things um and as i think you said you know you mentioned before you know the longer you own the business i think the longer that you own these businesses the more comfort that um you can get i mean you can find out more good stuff, but also more bad stuff. But, you know, you can see how management operate in different environments, how they prioritise things. Um, to me, that's far more valuable in understanding the DNA because, you know, and one reason is was, um, you know, business results aren't linear. Like businesses hit, you know, that's like anything. Like it's not always going to be good. So there's going to be bad, you know, you're going to hit some rough patches, right? But if you understand and you know, I said before, you, you have to understand any type of investing. But if you understand what you own and you hit a bad patch, you're more likely to hold on. Um, it's when you're fearful and you don't understand that you look to others to what to do. And, you know, in, in, in times of chaos and crisis, people just run to the exits. And then people think that the price carries news and you get stopped out of stocks at the wrong, you know, at the wrong time. But if you can understand the business and you can understand the destination, then you can tolerate, in my mind, a lot of volatility. It's not to say that you 
you know, so we're far more focused on, you know, that type of thing than sitting there uh, building a spreadsheet. I mean, I used to do quite a bit of uh, reserve uh, reverse DCF. So instead of building a DCF, I'd kind of back solve, you know, the company's done 20% a year for the last 10 years at the current price. I'm going to put in, I don't know, five, it, it, the current price is only implying that it's going to do 5% for the next 10 years. You know, terminal PEs, this discount rates 10%. Like we used to do a, a bit of that, but most of our time now is spent, what I would say, thinking about the business model, um, having a real understanding of what the DNA is in the business, what makes the business successful, what's going to help it achieve its destination, as opposed to, I just don't think there's an edge in spreadsheets. I just haven't seen anyone, you know, and I, I've studied a lot of great investors and I, you know, they never talk about their spreadsheet models or, I've got a 30,000 line spreadsheet model. In fact, the more information you have, you know, in, in some ways it can inhibit, you've got to focus on the core things. And if you spend your whole time trying to build a, you know, a detailed spreadsheet, you know, I think there's more, I, I think there's more important things, you know, for us anyway, that, mm. you know, we've certainly been more successful understanding the, you know, the real characteristics of what make a business great than, um, uh, you know, building more detailed models. We also talked about, um, I think, a very relevant concept of finding companies that are able to um, fight the fade or beat the fade. So we went through a, an example where I normally usually model a business using a DCF and then over time, maybe five, six years, you have um, strong growth rates, but then naturally it kind of deteriorates or fades away um, over a longer period of time. But I wanted to talk about it um, in a sense that you highlight the, the importance of finding companies that are able to do the contrary. Yeah, it's kind of um, when you study and, you know, we did talk about a little bit when you study business school, you know, business school and they teach you how to build, you know, DCFs and, you know, they're good things to teach because they're good things to mark and test people on. And, you know, your typical you know, lesson on doing a DCF will be, you know, even if you think the business has got a high growth rate, um, you know, and, and it makes sense because, you know, capitalism is brutal and, uh, you know, most businesses can't grow at high rates of return over long periods of time. Um, you know, think about the top 20 stocks in the S&P 500 130 years ago, probably not many of them will be in that, you know, maybe, maybe 50 years ago, they're not going to be in that category today, right? So, um, so you're taught to, you know, and the future's uncertain. So you're taught to, um, you know, have a high growth rate in the next, I don't know, three to five years. And then, you know, if it's growing at, I don't know, 20 or 15 or 20%, then maybe you, you fade it down to seven and then you have a terminal rate of, uh, of 3%. Where the real opportunity, you know, or where a great opportunities lie is where that doesn't fade, that that growth rate remains, you know, high for a longer period of time. And the reason that for that, you know, the impact is just the power of compounding small percentage changes, you know, over long periods of time have a phenomenal, phenomenal impact in terms of where you end up and, and, and the value. So even two or three percentage points over a long period of time with two numbers compounded have a, have a material, like huge, um, you know, to the extent I think most people, you know, even in the markets don't kind of understand. I mean, we think in humans think that we don't think in exponential terms, we think kind of in, in linear terms. So it's hard for people to kind of get their head around that. So that's the first point. So imagine if instead of the business growing it, you know, fading away, it can it can sustain high rates of return. The challenge is that few businesses can do that. You know, as I said, history is kind of littered with businesses that people thought were going to grow at 10 or 15% for long periods of time. And 
and that just doesn't happen. And you know, obviously in bull markets, people think that businesses grow, you know, it's just the nature of markets when everything's up and bullish, you think that your business will do better. And mm. when things are down, you don't. But there are some, uh, you know, there's some business models and things that, you know, certainly contribute to businesses being able to achieve, you know, high rates of return that can, you know, what's sometimes called defy the fade. And, um, you know, those businesses almost always are significantly mispriced just because of that power of compounding. I mean, think back to that Walmart example where you could have paid a PE of 1,500 times. I mean, it's it's ridiculous and it's an extreme example, but, you know, it, it, shows, it makes the point that, um, you know, the PE at the time is, is, you know, not relevant. And if you were to sit there at Walmart at that time, I'm sure, you know, everyone that built a spreadsheet model would have had, you know, growing at whatever the number was, 20% a year and then, and then fading and that just didn't happen. But you need to have a bit, you know, there needs to be some characteristic and, you know, I wrote a piece called Fight the Fade and the four things that, you know, I talked about, one was scale economic shared as a business model where, um, you know, we talked a little bit about it before, but where you have a business that's, that shares its scale as it grows, um, you know, a great example is Costco. As they get bigger, they get more, you know, they get economies of scale and rather than keep those, they pass them pass them along to their um, customer. You know, Audi's, a, Audi's another example. Geico, uh, Warren Buffett's, you know, Geico. Um, you know, these business, this business model has been around for a long period of time. But most businesses, when they get bigger, you know, kind of get less, get less profitable. Um, but if you've got a business that, you know, is a scale economics business, as it gets bigger, bigger the moat gets wider because you're getting more economies, you're sharing those with your customer, which means that the customer reciprocates. So you'll, you know, in the case of Costco, you know, you get bigger, you get scale benefits, you reduce your prices, customers reciprocate, they go and spend more, means you've got more sales, means you can get more economies of scale. And so as the business gets bigger, it gets more powerful. So, you know, the moat gets wider and that's what you always want in a business is you want a moat that's, you know, preferably growing. And so as that business grows, it gets, you know, it, you know, obviously there's a, I guess a finer point, but, you know, for those business can grow at very high rates of return for very long periods of time. So that's one model that we, that we like is scale economic share. Another model um, with a guy called Brian Arthur wrote a piece in 1996 called Increasing Returns. And I think something like the new business and the new nature of business. And he recognized that businesses historically were subject to decreasing returns. So if you have a retail, you know, a, a, a retailer and, you know, you've got a lot of stores and then you set up your next store, it's probably, you know, as you do more and more, the locations aren't as good. It's harder to get, you know, as good people, you get bureaucracy. And, or if you had a, I don't know, mining company, normally you kind of mine out the best areas, the, the most, um, you know, productive or agricultural, you, you know, go and plant out your best fields and you're not going in the valleys and so forth. So most businesses historically have always been subject to decreasing returns. But when technology came along, you know, you start to get businesses as they get bigger, they get better, the moat gets wider. And, you know, the classic example is, is something like, um, you know, Facebook or, you know, Google or, you know, even if you compare a business like, um, you know, realestate.com, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, realestate.com replaced you know, advertising and they can, you know, they can own the whole market. So, in, you know, most businesses are subject to decreasing returns. As they say, Microsoft, it cost them 50 million bucks to put out um, the first, you know, copy of Microsoft and the next one cost them probably 30 cents or something. So 
these businesses, as they get bigger, they get network effects. They don't use any capital so they can scale. So these businesses can continue to grow and they can defy what most people would expect them, you know, because as they get bigger, the network effect gets stronger. It's very hard for people to come in and compete. Like imagine trying to come in and compete with Google now. Mm. So um, these businesses are subject to increasing returns. So that's one. one. Yeah, I mean, other ones are businesses where you have markets that the markets become, uh, you know, when Amazon started, people think book was their mar- books were their market. But mm. you know, in some ways that comes back to good management. Okay, we're in books. What else can we do? Okay, we can be in other products. Okay, by the way, there's this business over here we can start up called AWS. So, you know, that really is, man- you know, management and culture and maybe culture and and management are the long are the two the longest potential competitive advantages that there are because mm. if you've got a culture of innovation and empowering your people and so forth um you know and trying new things trial and error willingness to make mistakes um you know you can get businesses that can last a very long time so that's what you're really looking for because ultimately you want if the business can grow at a higher rate of return than the market expects for longer Mm. Um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a good opportunity. Mm. And it goes back to what you said about your investing philosophy. You're trying to focus on finding businesses that are being valued at at what they're doing at the moment, so the core business. But you're also trying to find businesses that you know have that optionality where they can essentially replicate their success, but in different avenue streams. And I think those are really good examples that you talked about, which um, reflect what you um, what your investment approach is. In terms of, I think building mental models is very important. I think not focusing too much on spreadsheets and focusing more on the qualitative aspects and and reading broadly. And you do read a lot. Um, so in terms of absorbing knowledge, how do you take notes? Is there any process or structure that you religiously follow? So there's a process I, I religiously um, follow. I try. I do try to read um, broadly, and you know, I always, as I said before, I always enjoy. You know, an, an investor who I respect um, might recommend something. Is you know, that's you know something that I'd certainly you know an investor I really respected recommended. Like, or I got hold of their book list, I might go down and order a few of their books and make the effort to read them. Sometimes I'll kind of go down a, a rabbit hole. You know, I mentioned I've been reading. You know, over the last ten years, I've read a lot of a lot of company about great companies but also about bad companies um i've read a lot about technology over the last you know couple of years trying to kind of increase my understanding or build out my my mental models are really just a way of understanding the world like having a good Mm. something that explains something to you like fighting the fade or scale economic shared it's it's a mental model that helps you understand something that you know it puts it into you know, into context. So you understand something when you see it, you you know, you understand why it's happening. Um, and when I read, I, I, you know, I kind of write all over my books. So I, I tend to underline, uh, you know, underline a, a lot and make little notes um, in the book. So I always got a pen with me or a marker when I'm reading. And then if I really enjoy the book, you know, I'll either pull out some quotes and, you know, I might post it on, you know, on Twitter. I've got a Word document that's Oh, it would be hundreds of pages where like, you know, quotes on certain things. And that's how Masters Invest started really is just my collection of quotes on different topics. So, you know, I'll, I'll do that for books. So if there's stuff in there, I'll, I'll probably read and underline a heap of it. And then if I really enjoy it, 
you know, I might write a post on it. So, mm. you know, I've written, you know, a, a lot of posts. A lot of them are about books I've really enjoyed. And I try to, out of the, in those posts, I try to pull out the common, you know, the common factors. And a lot of Masters Invest really is, it's kind of a depository uh, for where mm. I can, you know, go back and reread things about businesses. And, um, you know, a lot of investing is pattern recognition. I think it's, you know, mm. kind of, understanding looking at a business why is it successful where else could i find that or you know what are some thematics so that's really how i um uh you know i i underline a lot you know i do try to i i, I try to read you know i read stuff that i i find interesting and you know it, it's amazing you find these ideas that you you read these books and then you know maybe sometime down the track something comes across that you see and you're like oh yeah that's that i've kind of recognized that so i mean a good example was I read a book on Patagonia, which is an amazing business you know, in terms of, um, you know, winning in the ecosystem and the environment and so forth. And the CEO was very focused on, you know, the environment and taking care. Like, if, you know, he, they basically they'd advertise like this year, don't buy a jacket, like get it repaired. And they'll repair, like if you buy a jacket from mm. Patagonia and it's, um, you know, it's got a, a rip in it or something happens to it, for the lifetime of that product, um, they, will, they will repair it for free. And um, you can take the product back to them, and they'll, you know, dispose of it in a in a thoughtful manner for the environment. And um, you know, so I was kind of reading, you know, that, and um, and then more recently, I read uh, the Dell book on uh, Michael Dell, when he was talking about, um, you know, he 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 had a realization that all of a sudden all these computers and monitors and uh, keyboards were ending up in the dump with his dumpster, and you know landfill with his name on it um and he's like well i don't think we can you know i've got to now take you know i need to be responsible for that and then uh you know i read the dyson book um james dyson which was an, which was an excellent uh, book and he and he made the same point he said like you know we're building this stuff and it's like you know we've got we have to be responsible for you know what happens to it at, at the end of its life and so i you know so you know i picked up on on those things and and you know, it's, it's almost like a connect the dots, right? And you start to see these thematics building and then, you know, you might think, well, how, how can I get involved there? Like, is there a, you know, is there a thematic? Is there a tailwind here? And in any investing, you're far better off having a tailwind than a headwind. Um, you know, we, lo we love businesses where there's some natural tailwind. So, you know, it's just little things like that that you pick up in your reading that you can apply to, um, you know, apply to your investments. Mm. I like your example with Patagonia, I think. Um, when we chatted before, um, you talked about a book called Skin in the Game by Nasser Taleb, um, how a stubborn minority can impose its will on the relatively disinterested majority. And you kind of applied that thought process to Australian ethical um, as an investment idea. Yeah, that was, the, that, was, that was probably, you know, we talk about, you know, how you come up with ideas. That was probably the main thematic behind our investment um, in, in Australian ethical was that, that we were at an inflection point where um, ethical investing, you know, and we, we're huge believers in, and our type of investing is over the long term or medium to long term, if your ecosystem is not winning. So if your employers, suppliers, customers, um, society, community, the environment, if they're not, if, they, if everyone's not winning, then um, you're unlikely to be successful over the over the long term. Like we in the investments that we look at, we want the whole ecosystem, uh, you know, the whole ecosystem to be um, to be winning. You know, so as a starting point for you know, if if that's your type of investing, when you're looking for you know the ecosystem to win, 
you know, studies will show that, you know, those, those assets are, you know, long-term will do well. So that's as a starting point, it makes sense to, you know, be focused on that. But, um, you know, I was reading um, Taleb's book, Skin in the Game, where he talked about minority choosing for, uh, for the majority. And I thought about it um, and he talked about whether you went to a, you know, a wedding and there was different people that had different food preferences. And so you rang your wedding planner and they're like, okay, who's got different food preferences? And you said, oh, I don't know, there's, I don't know, 200 people coming. And, and the wedding planner said, look, we can cater for these people. It's not going to cost you any more. The food's going to taste just as good, but everyone's going to be, everyone will be satisfied. And it, like, obviously you tick that box, um, you know, that, that's the wedding you choose. So the minority has chosen there for the majority. So, the, you know, because mm. the, the person says, oh, okay, well, there's 100 people when, you know, 10 people only want um, kosher food. So, you know, like, let's just make sure that it's, it, it's suitable for everyone. So, mm. um, you know, as I thought about it, I thought like if you were, you know, running a, you know, you're running a, a mutual, you're running a mutual fund and, um, you know, there's a thousand members in that fund and then you know 20 or 30 of them are really focused on on the environment and they're the people that are saying like say it's a corporate pension plan and and 20 or 30 people and you're the manager they they're ringing you going how come we're investing in um, you know these businesses that aren't good for the climate that aren't good for people's health that are you know polluting or whatever you tell me that our business our business that you know that we own is in, it doesn't do this so why are we investing in all these things and as the manager, you're, you know, you're taking a lot of heat from a small number of people about that type of investing. Anyway, someone comes to you and says, oh, by the way, Raymond, we can give you this, we can invest for you in an ethical manner that is going to tick all the boxes and keep all of your people happy. And they can probably, and we can probably prove to you over the longer term that it will outperform. And you say, okay, that sounds great. What is the cost? And it's like, well, the, the cost, it's not going to cost you any more than what you're paying. That's a simple decision for you to make um, that's going to appease the minority, but the majority, and the majority are no worse off. In fact, they, arguably, they could be better off. So I saw that as a, you know, we were at an inflection point. And then, and then what happens is the person, the, the people that are unhappy about it, talk to their friends that work in a similar business. And then, you know, their boss says, oh, you know, well, by the way, I know Raymond, you know, and he's investing this way. Why aren't we doing it? And so then social proof kicks in. Hmm. And, and so they're the mental models behind, you know, that, that idea that, hey, maybe we're, at a, maybe we're at an inflection point. Maybe we're going to start to see, you know, some significant inflows into um, ethical investing. Maybe this is going to take off. And then we did the work on the business and it's, you know, it's got other characteristics that we like. So, you know, it, it was really coming, kind of coming out of that, really out of reading that book and coming to that recognition that, hey, maybe there's an opportunity here. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think, you know, behind a lot of our, uh, you know, a lot of our ideas, there's, you know, one or two core mental models. And then hopefully, um, you know, there's a lot of other little things combined, which can combine, which together create the opportunity. So maybe it's like they've also got a great culture. They empower their people you know, they're radically transparent with their staff, you know, those type of things. Yeah, your last uh, comments about people, staff, culture. Um, I think when we chatted, you particularly emphasised one example, leash rob tires, um, which I think Munger covered, and it talks about how he implemented um, a really strong incentive structure 
that empowered employees and that had a very was very effective in um in growing the business yeah there's a book um charlie munger uh you know and he and charlie munger himself is you know one of the greatest students of human psychology and you know more so than you know 99 percent of people and he says um you know for a guy that understands incentives even he underestimates you know their impact right which is um, which is pretty unbelievable and he talks about a book um called pride in performance about a business uh it's about a guy who's now passed away called Lee schwab who had a tire business in the us that was hugely successful and you think about a tire business there's not a lot of you know the, the, this was one guy running you know a tire business he wasn't associated with Bridgestone or Goodyear, so he didn't really have any competitive advantages um, outside of people and kind of service. And Munger said, if you at one of the general meetings, he said, if you want to understand uh, the power of incentives and incentives, then um, you know I'd recommend this book called um, Pride in Performance by um, Lee Schwab. And um, you know, as I mentioned, if you know someone recommends a you know particularly of the nature of Munger or Buffett recommend a book, then I'm probably going to read it. Anyway, so I read that um, I read that book about the incentive structure, and um, I was down in Melbourne, and we were meeting a whole heap of um, a whole heap of companies, and um, I, I met the CEO of um, uh, this company that does work in um, you know natural um, disaster repairs for insurance companies, and it's basically a, it, it's it's basically a business which is made up of thirty or forty very small businesses where the you know where they see an opportunity they will go and pick a person um, you know who they know or in another part of the business to kind of and give them some equity in that small business to go and build out that business so um, you know you've got a person there that might own 10 percent of the company they're not 10 percent of the company 10 percent of that individual little business they're highly incentivized they get funded into it they probably get a dividend check every every six months now that person is competing with other businesses in that industry that are getting paid a salary and working nine to five that have no ownership. So you're obviously going to get a situation where you know you have this emergent behaviour, um, which is very very hard to compete against. So remember meeting the company, and I walked out for the first half an hour. All the CEO talked about was people. You know his motto is um, you know we don't look at CVs, we hire for um, energy and uh, energy and, and integrity and it's a bit like uh, one of the great CEOs Herb Kelleher from Southwest Airlines said he said uh, train for skill hire for integrity or hire for integrity train for skill and that's their motto as well so you know we love these businesses that have something idiosyncratic about it in incentive structure that's going to mean that it's going to out compete it's almost like an emergent behavior that emerges from you know the external parts of the business it's not being directed from you know the top or the ceo it's like you've created this structure that gets people highly motivated you know um, you encourage them you know they're happy to go to work most people you know most people 60 or 70 percent of people you know don't like going to work you know that's a that's a statistic um you know imagine having a business where 80 percent of people or 90 percent of people come come to work and they love it like you're going to win mm -hmm. so yeah that, that was an example where you know that was one of the main thematics behind you know our thesis uh, was that you know this business had a incentive structure and a partnership model uh, which was going to be very hard to compete with and then you start getting you know they had the benefit of national scale 
They were much bigger than their next best competitor. We love businesses that are the leaders and winners. So these guys can advertise. They can go to insurance companies and say, we'll offer you products across the whole of you know, Australia, not just in New South Wales or Queensland. You don't have to deal. We can offer you the, the whole. And you know, that was a mental model I picked up reading the Copart book. So, and you know, in time you learn more about these businesses. And um, you know, the more of these mental models you have in the head in your head, you know, I think it's uh, you know, it's more likely that you're going to find more, you know, hopefully you're going to find more opportunities. Uh, I love this approach where you're trying to build a mental model, trying to identify characteristics of businesses to help you find better investment ideas. There's another book that you mentioned um, yesterday. I think it's called In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. And I got to say, I quickly Googled it, um, found it on Amazon. It's only $20 and bought it straight away. So, <laughs> Well, that's a value investment, Raymond. Um, I, think it's a fan- I think it's a fantastic book. I probably read it not that long ago, maybe, th- maybe three or four years ago. Um, I was reading from memory, I was reading a letter um, from a, an investment group in the in the UK called Linzel Train, who you know I think I would put them in the, the category of the Buffett, Munger, Acre, Terry Smith, and they said that, um, and I had never seen this quote before, but they said that Warren Buffett said that that was one of the best business books or the most insightful business books ever written, hmm. and um, so I thought, well, that you know, there's a book that I, I need to read. So. It was written in about 1980 by a guy called Tom Peters, uh, who was ex-McKinsey. He might have been McKinsey at the time. Mm. And it was basically a survey. And it's not, not the easiest book to read, but it was basically a survey of America's greatest businesses. Mm. So, you know, what were the characteristics of these great, you know, these great businesses? Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the things that they talked about are qualitative. Um, and, you know, people can be, you know, I know there's like books like Good to Great and, you know, people would probably put this book into that. Some people would put this book into that category. It's like, yeah, well, you know, those businesses weren't, you know, they weren't all successful. Um, and I think there's some limitations about business models and, you know, technology changes and so forth. You know, so, so but the businesses that were in areas which were not disrupted by technology, um, you know, are, are very, very powerful business model, models. And, you know, I've studied, you know, businesses, like a lot of great businesses, Audi, Disney, Starbucks, um, you know, Copart, um, you know, Nucor, you know, and, and, and what you find is that there's all these characteristics and they're, and just like great investors, so many of them are the, the common characteristics that you find and they're unconventional. And what surprised me was that those characteristics are no different uh, you know, from 40 years ago, from in, in that book. So things like empowering people, treating your employees with respect, um, letting your employees make decisions, um, accepting of failure, um, encouraging innovation, um, being radically transparent, um, you know, with your people. I mean, <laughs> just a little anecdote. The other day, my son has got a job in a, in a menswear shop uh, or a, sorry, a, a clothes shop. And um, he, I said to him, he's only been there a month. And I said, a month mm. or two, and I said to him, oh, you know, how are you enjoying it? Tell me a bit about the business. And mm. he said, oh, it's great. And he said, uh, every week they send us a text message with all of the sales numbers for the, from the previous week for the 15 or whatever stores. And he said, oh, mm. you know, like we always, we want to beat, you know, I don't know, Hobart or, you know, we mm. want to beat Hobart. Like we can't believe they had a better 
weep than us lot when they try hard to you know beat the Hobart store. And I said, how does that make you feel? And he's like, oh, it's good. You know, we're competitive and like, and and that's empowering. Like that's you know, like he's kind of gamifying it. Like you know, yeah. having fun. You know, that was another big thing in the book, having fun. And I said, well, how does that you know make you feel? And he said, well. You know, um, you know, I feel like I'm important. They're happy to share this. I'm not sure they should be sharing this information with me, but like, you know, mm. it's so he's made to feel like, you know, they trust him, they respect him, they value him. And by the way, here's the numbers. And great businesses are very transparent. Like it's one of the things I found. They share the numbers, they put them up on boards, um, you know, they give people goals. You know, so it's, you know, what was uncanny was just these, all these characteristics that when you, when I read that book and, you know, all the businesses I've studied, not just, you know, in the in the in the last, you know, business, but business has been around for a long period of time. You find these common characteristics. So, you know, I hope you. It's it, it, it's not an easy read, but I hope you. Um, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly, uh, you know, in, I think in the website, I probably in the other reading, it's probably the number one book. Okay, thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> so, just going to move away from books and more into um, something that you've been spending much more time on. You've been diving deep into technology, so reading a lot of concept papers, journals. I think you've mentioned them before, um, the likes of Brian Arthur, Andy Grove, um, Carlotta Perez. I think um, one notable or notable example that you mentioned was the one who wrote about the future or potential destination of, of Facebook, and they were spot on. Well, I think the, the you know of those, as I said, I've kind of been down that rabbit hole um, over the last year or so reading, you know, uh, Brian Arthur, I came across from the Santa Fe Institute. I mentioned that piece that he wrote, which, um, you know, geez, I wish I'd read that in 1996. I would have understood, you know, you know what great businesses, um, you know, the fangs were and what they mm. could go on to, on to become. Um, Andy Grove ran Intel, um, you know, talks about like inflection points. Um, Carlotta Perez, uh, his book is on, um, I, I came across that book. It was recommended by James Anderson of Bailey Gifford. It's an unbelievable book on, um, you know, technological revolutions. And, um, you know, I'd read before, you know, about the history of railroads in the US and how it, you know, opened up America really from, you know, places that just uh, weren't even on the map all of a sudden that you had this massive interconnected network and, you know, businesses thrived and it reminded me you know, a lot about what's happened opening up the world with, you know, technology and the internet. And mm. um, that book goes through and talks about, you know, kind of technological uh, revolutions. So it starts with, I think it starts with railroads and then, you know, does things like the telephone and mass production. And then um, it was written in 2000. And then she talks about, you know, basically you start with a, um, with a kind of uh, a frenzy and a bubble, and then you go through a difficult period and then, the technology gets diffused um, through different types of industries and, and different geographies. And, you know, she basically said, look, um, you know, she wrote, I think after the tech crash, she said, like, this is kind of like just the starting point for these, you know, technologies that have been created. A lot of capital obviously went into, um, you know, that was one, that's one of the great things about uh, you have this massive boom and um, you get this capital that's lazy because it's in old industries. You know, it's, it's just thriving to, to find something, um, you know, more exciting and higher returns, searching for higher returns. So you get this massive frenzy. Um, there's so much capital and such a little place to go. So you tend to get bubbles and then you get this crash. And then you, after that, you get the diffusion. This is multi-decades. 
and, and you know when you read it it's like she's you know looking back on it 20 years i mean she's been absolutely um, absolutely spot on so you know i think having an understanding of you know like where the world might be going another great book i read was the platform revolution uh, to understand what makes great platforms that was a very good book um, mm. brian arthur's stuff on increasing returns yeah i think you know once again it's just kind of building out the mental models and understanding of the um, you know, of the world that, you know, hopefully, hopefully helps us, um, you know, identify good, good investment opportunities. Mm. I think um, I'll be interested to find out whether or not you're reading any concept papers or journals, journals about blockchain technology, which seems to be a very strong thematic recently. I haven't, but I can understand, like, if you read, if you read the Carla, Carlotta Perez book, mm. it, it helps put into context what's actually happening. So, you know, I can definitely understand what's happening, you know, like what's happening and hmm. you could build out a framework for, um, you know, where, where we might, you know, kind of where we might end up, right? So, you know, there's all this lazy capital, it's looking for, you know, high returns. Um, hmm. you know, there's, there's one place you can put it to begin with, maybe that's Bitcoin, um, you know, with all things investing, then, um, you know, when something's successful, one of um, Wall Street's greatest tricks is coming up with, 20 other things that look the same you know you can you can understand i can understand the the conceptual framework and then maybe um you know obviously we've had you know some crazy stuff with you know nfts but you can understand that like there's going to be a lot of capital that goes into the blockchain and the world is probably going to be different we don't know how it's going to end up it's hard to you know from, from you know my perspective would i invest in you know we, we try to buy businesses where we think there's intrinsic value so I'm not sure I can get to a point where I think there's intrinsic value in the cryptocurrencies. Does that mean that we wouldn't that you shouldn't own any of it? Well, not necessarily. If it's highly asymmetric, you you know, as long as you can tolerate some losses, then you know, it might make sense to own one or two percent of it in your portfolio. But I do think that you're going to get to a point like where yes, all of that technology is going to uh, diffuse itself and find you know, ways that we can't even think about now that it's going to be useful. And and one of the things I have learned in investing is. Uh, you know, over the years, um, you know, the experiences, when you have a very strong negative view on things, um, often it is that you just don't understand it, right? So, um, you know, it's easy to sit there and say, oh, like, you know, I'm sure it was easy to say Tesla, you know, was ridiculous when it became bigger than General Motors or bigger than Ford. And then, you know, it becomes ridiculous when it's market caps bigger than every auto company in the world. We, we have such limited knowledge and, and things that are innovative and new and at the edge. It's very hard. Like if it was that easy to understand them and where they're going to be, then, you know, we would have come up with them before. So, you know, I don't like betting, you know, I wouldn't go and bet against those things. Um, hmm. It's not the type of investing that we do, but I do think um, having that framework and reading the Carlotta Perez book, um, there was another good book recommended by one of the Tiger Cub guys, Philip Lafont called um, Engines That Move Markets. Uh, similar type of thing about understanding the history of how did he talks more more about individual kind of companies and performance and so forth. But yeah, I think understanding history and understanding technology and how it works as well. Carlotta Perez's book is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very um, very good approach to view the Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency and blockchain space and trying to understand um, how the world looks like. Um, by using those frameworks. And on the topic of frameworks, you mentioned previously that it's, it's quite, it's not easy, but it's easier to mimic the great investors' investing style of trying to find high quality businesses 
um, that compound at high rates compared to your macro and your trading strategies. But I think one thing I took away from that comment was that it, it might be easy to replicate the strategy. And you've mentioned this before, but it's, it's much harder to have the emotional and psychological mindset to play that strategy out. So I think it'd be great to talk about you know, the key, the key traits and also potential biases or pitfalls um, that a great investor needs to acknowledge and also work on um, over time to become a great investor. I think you need patience as an investor. Um, and I think you need to recognize that you don't need to get rich quickly. The power of compounding is is so extreme that, and, and, you know, we talked a bit about cryptocurrency before, you know, the challenge with, with uh, you know, it's easy to go and look at something and say, geez, Bitcoin's been a great performer. People like to buy things after they've already gone up. Like, I, I'm not sure where Bitcoin, you know, I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't think anyone knows where, where it's going to be. So it's hard to underwrite the future, you know, in that. And there's no, what I would say is, you know, really intrinsic, intrinsic value. If you buy a business that's spitting out cash and profitable, then, you know, you can get your return out of the underlying returns, you know, from the business. It's not, it's investing. It's not, it's not speculating. So I think, as I said, like you don't need to make, you know, people are in a hurry to make uh, returns. Um, you know, Buffett's, you know, got the best long-term track record. He's done 20% a year. So people thinking they can buy crypto and triple their money in a year, like, yeah, I'm sure some people have done that, but uh, I'm not sure it's a path to long-term uh, long-term wealth creation. So I think, you know, what I would say about investing is be patient, try and find high quality businesses. I think that's, you know, in, I think that's the best hedge for, you know, long-term returns against, you know, I mean, just think about COVID. The guy from uh, Andy Grove from Intel said, bad businesses get destroyed by crises, good businesses survive them and, and, and great businesses, uh, you know, are made better, better by them. Um, and I certainly think that, that's, you know, that's, that's true. I mean, if you think back, you know, about, you know, any businesses really, I mean, like, you know, we've had a stress test one in a hundred year flood in the last, you know, two years, right? So in, in, I'd kind of argue in some ways that the businesses that are around today, are, you know, are, 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 have been proven and maybe they're a little more valuable. So I think they're the, you know, they're the kind of the key points, understand what you invest in, understand that markets are going to be volatile. You are going to take some drawdowns that's just the nature it doesn't matter what stocks you own if the market goes down you know ordinarily nothing's uh, nothing's immune focus on the destination you know they're the key uh, the key points that um, I'd make like minimize downside so you you know you're going to have to be diversified understand you're not always going to be right people make mistakes you can't possibly know everything uh, it's just not possible so you know, there. If you you know, if you take on those traits I mentioned before, try to think about those. You know, the markets are the the stock market is. You know, people think it's risky, right? But when you think about the long term returns, um, you know, the stock market over the long term is delivered ten percent per annum. Uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia put out a great paper a couple of years ago looking at the long term returns. Now, uh, the Aussie market, I think, on average, has done ten percent per year. You've obviously had this was up to 2019. So you've had, you know, World War, Great Depression in there. I think it was just after the um, uh, the other pandemic that we had in, I think it was 1917. But you've had all sorts. You've had trade wars, you've had massive inflation, and yet the, you know, the, the market still did 10% per annum. Over that period of time, the bond market did about 6%. 
Um, so, so there was a 4% differential that, um, that stocks did. Um, and if you put $100, I think in 1917, into the stock market today, you would have $2 million. Um, if you put it into the bond market, which did 6%, so only 4%, it's only a 4% differential, you'd have $46,000. So you made about 43 times more money investing in, um, investing in the stock market. But you, know, you can't invest in the stock market if you want the money next week or if you think you're gonna make you know, 20% in the next six months, it's just not gonna happen. You have, to, you, you have to be patient and you have to take a medium to long-term view you know, I think what you know what we've seen and the the, the drivers of that long term ten percent return, I think, are still are very much intact in terms of you know capitalism works, um, high levels of innovation, et cetera, et cetera. So and that's kind of the the key takeaway mm. uh, that I take out of it. Mm. Having um, gone into the buy side and then running your own fund, have you been? Is there any way or process structure that you? Used to keep track of your psychological psychological mindset and any biases that might creep up. Or, well, one thing that one one thing that I, I do do when I, you know when we're investing is um, you know when I you know or people ask me about stocks you know I, I tend to say to them look this is you know this is my view on I think it's a good company these are the reasons that uh, that we like it but um, you know but I might I might be wrong and so I think giving myself that ability to, to recognize that you know I might be wrong is going to make it easier uh, for me to change my decision if I get conflicting information so you know and you know always kind of seeking out that kind of information that's contrary to to your view but where people I think get into trouble is where they're they're absolutely adamant that um, you know this stock is a buy it's you know you just it's not possible you know, you, you, it, it's a fine balance between confidence and humility, you know, to, to, to realise that, you know, hey, you might be wrong. Um, so, you know, one of the strongest human biases is commitment and confirmation bias um, that, you know, we always think, you know, we're smart and we don't like to admit that we've made mistakes and we seek out information that's uh, confirming, you know, and people might write a negative story about a stock that we... Uh, you know, that we own and we, we probably just dismiss it and say, oh, you know, what they know. So I think that's important. You've got to be, you know, open-minded enough um, to recognise. So that's one of the, I, I think that's, you know, one of the, you know, little hacks, I suppose, that I use to um, make sure that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not falling in love with, mm. with stocks that we own. Mm. Yeah, I think personally, I, I find it easy to fall in love with um, the stocks that I own because every time I see a positive um, comment on it it kind of releases these endorphins so <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard one to keep manage of i guess oh that's human nature you know yeah. it's it's um you know we unfortunately we're wired that way <laughs> um you know we're, yeah. we're wired to be fearful and and greedy and um you know that that's you know come from millions of years of, of evolution we haven't evolved to be good good um you know to, to behave correctly you know in different stock market cycles mm. Um, so I think this is a very important question and I've asked this question, um, um, for all my guests and it's, um, who's had the most influence on your development as a person, um, and as an investor and why? Well, I don't think there's a, like, as an investor, I don't think it's any, you know, individual, you know, I certainly, um, you know, I've probably learned the most from, you know, Charlie Munger and, um, and Warren Buffett. 
you know, not in not in just investing, but in terms of how they conduct themselves in in life and listening to, you know, their their theories um, about you know life life in general. And you know, as I said, I've you know kind of read all the you know Berkshire letters and studied the Buffett partnership letters prior to that. And you know, I've spent the time to go through and kind of study the Berkshire meetings where you get a lot of kind of uh, questions about you know all sorts like the unscripted questions about I don't know franchises and whether you'd invest in these type of companies so as an investor I've learned you know probably the most from those guys but as I said I've also taken a lot from all, all types of investors like building out the mental models um you know over the last few years certainly um you know my partner is um you know she likes pushing me outside of my comfort zone you know to to challenge you know challenge myself to do things that maybe I'd be you know less inclined less inclined to to want to do so yeah she's been you know she's she works in technology in technology and you know she's pushes me to like hey you need to look at these you know why aren't you looking at all these technology stocks and um you know the world's changing and you know so and and just you know kind of pushing back on ideas and theories and and that's what you want is you want people that are going to test you people that have diversity of opinion um people that are, i think are high quality um, you know, all of those, you know, and, and Buffett and Munger says, you know, associate yourself with the people you want to be. You know, I think that's great advice. So, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. 100% agree. Um, I think it's really fortunate that you have um, great people beside you, especially your partner. Um, I think it, it does help um, a lot when you have um, people who push you to be better, um, not only as an investor, but also a better person. So we've talked so much and I'm... Um, I'm really privileged and um, grateful to have you on the Australian Investors Podcast. Um, um, I think the listeners will listen to this podcast um, more than more than once. I definitely will be re-listening um, because I think um, the insights that you provide, not only from your work experience, um, but also your knowledge about um, the great investors, um, all the books that you've read. And I think the Australian investing community is... I'm very fortunate and lucky to have someone like that, someone like you to share all your, all your knowledge. And so um, thank you for coming on the Australian Investors Podcast, John. Thank you, Raymond. You're too kind. Um, you know, I really, I really enjoyed the, um, I really enjoyed the conversation and, um, you know, if people want to, um, you know, um, access the, um, you know, the website, as you mentioned, it's um, mastersinvest.com. You can join the mailing list. You know, always happy to you know get feedback and and hear from people and thoughts and so forth. So, um, you know, it's been a it's been a real pleasure chatting. Thoroughly. Yeah. I think your Twitter handle is at Masters Invest. Is that right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's right. Um, hopefully, speak soon and um, good luck with um, the rest of the journey. That's great. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for listening to part two of my chat with John Garrett. I hope you gained a lot of valuable knowledge because I sure did. If you want to check out this episode in full or other episodes like this one, head to the Rask YouTube channel.